How you doing, family? Pastor Miles here. I am so excited to introduce my friend, Michael Franzese, former mafia member, son of the Colombo crime family. Back in the 80s, he was running five to eight million dollars a week. Uh, but God changed his life and he has a powerful story for you. So get up out of your seat and let's give a powerful, warm rock welcome to Michael Franzese. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's my friend Doug. Well, I got to say, man, I am impressed. And I tell you this, I've been all over this world. I've heard every worship band that you can hear. This band rocks. Am I right? Gets everybody ready. I got to tell you, it's really great to be here, but before I start, I want to give a real thank you to all the San Diego Padre fans for beating those pesty Tampa Bay Rays last night. If my Yankees have a shot, everybody's got to knock that team out of first place, but anyway, it's great. And uh, can anybody hear me okay? You know, it's funny, at one time in my life, I swore I'd never wear a wire. Now I have one on just about every day, but uh, still can't get used to it, but... Anyway, really great to be here, be back here again. I think the last time I was here was 2011, and uh, we had a great time then, and I'm sure we're going to have a great time this morning. Yesterday, I was in New York for a couple of days, and uh, yesterday I was at the Tribeca Film Festival. We had an event from 3 to 6 o'clock, and then we had to catch a plane at 9. Now, New York, traffic, going from Manhattan to Kennedy Airport, very, very rough. I have my wife and daughter with me. They're all nervous. It was very hard for me to get out at the event. I have a lot of people that I know there. Uh, and then we hit traffic, of course. But uh, I said, don't worry. The Holy Spirit has our backs. We'll get on the plane. The plane was delayed, so we, we're good. But I got to say this. I have one complaint. First time I landed in San Diego, the baggage department there took like almost two hours to get our baggage last night. So I got in like at 3 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, but I'm good, I'm fresh, I'm used to it, so really great to be here. And you know, people, every time I come and speak, oh, first of all, wait, happy Father's Day to all you dads. Yes, and thank you to all the moms for making us dads, right? We appreciate that very much. Really, I have seven children, it's gonna be a special day, it's the one day I get for them to worry about me, I hope anyway, we'll see how that works out. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really a great day. And uh, dads, I got to tell you, if this planet ever needed us more than at any time in my lifetime, I don't know, dads. We got to be standing up and we got to be real dads, real husbands, real men, right? Okay. Patterned after our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who was the only true man's man that ever walked the face of the earth. I'm going to get into that in a little bit. And you know, I had a different message prepared this morning. I go to Greg Laurie's church. He's my pastor over at Harvest. I've been knowing Greg for a long time. And uh, two Father's Days, uh, not last year, but the year before, I gave a message about what it means to be a man in 2023. And it was received very well because I really think men need to hear that. There's been a, a, a movement to try to dumb down men's roles in our lives, and we can't have that, man. We gotta stand up. Uh, but you know, as I'm coming here, you know, the Holy Spirit just said, you know what, Michael, just tell your testimony, man, because there's a lot of people that haven't heard it. And I think, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me. So that's what we're going to do this morning best we can. And you know, every time I come up and speak, my prayer is always the same, realizing I'm just a messenger here this morning. And I really mean that 
I'm not here to turn anybody into a Christian. I never try to impose my faith on anyone. I don't do that. That's God's deal. He does his work. I'm here merely just to share what the Lord has done in our lives. And you know, as Christians, we're obligated to do that. Mark 16, 15, Jesus' last command to all of us, go out and preach or share the good word with all of creation. You know, my prayer is always, Lord, let me be effective. Let me be passionate enough in delivering this message so that you can reach out and touch the heart you want to touch in this room this morning. And people, I know some of you walked in here this morning, you're struggling with something. We're all dealing with something in our lives, whatever it might be, whether it's financial, personal stuff, whatever it might be, we all have something that we're dealing with in life. And I want to be an encouragement to all of you this morning because I want you to take a real good look at me. I don't care what you're going through. Take a real good look. I'm probably the most blessed, most fortunate person that's ever going to walk up on this stage and talk to you about anything. And why do I say that? Because had I been left up to my own to do what I wanted to do in my life, follow the path that I was on, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. And you know what? That's what I deserved. That's what I earned for myself, having spent over 20 years on the street every day, and I mean every day, in violation of both God's laws and the laws of man. And I know for a fact, God has made it crystal clear for me over these past 20 some odd years that if he didn't have a different plan and purpose for my life, I wouldn't be here this morning. No doubt about it. And you know, I'm going to tell you a story, and it is a mob story, but don't focus on that. People, you want to see mob stuff. Yesterday at the event, we watched the Bronx Tale again. I got to tell you, it brings back some memories. The good old bad days, I call them. But anyway, um, you know, you can see me. I'm all over YouTube, social media. Go watch all the movies. It's all out there. Just watch how God took a very dark time in my life and used it for his glory. Because remember, what the enemy meant for bad, God will turn around and use for his glory. Amen? So all of you that are struggling, that you've been through some dark times, you say, you know what? How could God ever forgive me? How could he ever use me? I've been a bust out. I've done the, the wrong thing my whole life. Just take a look at me. Because if God can forgive me, and I really believe he has, and there's no arrogance in that, people. You don't do what I do. Get down on your knees, say a prayer, and think it's all over. No. It took me a long time entering into this relationship with Jesus and really realizing that the entire message of the cross, the entire message of the Bible is about what? God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. And if we sincerely confess our sins, what's the key word there? Sincerely. Because people want to be honest with you. I pulled a lot of scams on the street, no doubt. But I know this, I can't pull a scam on God. He knows our hearts. And if we sincerely ask for forgiveness and we accept him as our Lord and Savior, we are forgiven, hands down. That's the message. So be encouraged. And selfishly, I want you to walk out of here a little bit differently than you walked in here today. I really mean that. I take ministry very, very seriously. And I know this. It happens every single time. Somebody's going to walk up to the table to me today, the book table, and going to say, Mike, I didn't even know you were going to be here, but the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I needed to hear that message. It happens every single time. So today's the day. Whatever you're going through, forget it. Give it up to Jesus. I guarantee there will be a change in your life. No doubt about it. So my story begins, you know, my story really is about two fathers in my life, my earthly father, Sonny Francis, and of course, my heavenly father. And you know, people, 
It's, it's amazing. You look at your life and you see that we've had these defining moments in our life. Things that happened that really had an impact on us and sometimes to change the trajectory, you know, the, the path that our life would take. And I had a couple of them. I'm going to get into that today. But let me give you a little bit of history. I grew up in Brooklyn. My dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York mafia Cousin Oster families. And, and by the way, there really is no mafia here in, in uh, America. Mafia exists in Italy. In, it, in America, it's called Cosa Nostra. It means this thing of ours. Very similar to the mafia in Italy, but different in many ways. Uh, when men from the mafia would come over here, we didn't share our secrets with them. Uh, we were courteous to them, obviously, but we didn't share our secrets because they are two separate organizations. And uh, the underboss is a very powerful position. In that life, you have a boss, an underboss, a capo regime, or captain, and a soldier. I'm sure many of you have seen The Godfather. There is a position called consigliere. Robert Duvall played that role, played it brilliantly, I might add, but in The Godfather, it was fictional. Because in order to be a sworn, made member of that life and take the oath, you do take an oath, your father must be Italian. Mom can be of another descent, but dad must be Italian. And, um, you know, my dad had such a, a powerful influence on me, people. He was always in trouble. You know, he was kind of like the John Gotti of his day. And I'm telling you, I grew up a lot differently than just about everybody in this room. I grew up hating the police. I hated the government. I hated law enforcement. And not because my dad taught me that way. He was smart. He taught me to respect the law. But it was really because of what I witnessed as a kid growing up. Law enforcement tactics, techniques against organized crime, very different back then than they are today. Today, everything is very covert. A lot of undercover informants, high-tech surveillance equipment. Today, a guy can be under investigation and not really know about it until it's too late. Back in my day, when my dad was under investigation, they wanted you to know about it. And for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up, Brooklyn, later on Long Island, my dad was under investigation from seven or eight different agencies. FBI, IRS, Queen Detective, Brooklyn DA, you name it, they were on him. And every one of these agencies had a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I was one of seven kids also. They had us cornered on all sides. Whenever we as a family would leave to go anywhere, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. Everybody knew when we were coming into town. And I witnessed some things that were kind of unpleasant. They would get out of hand. It was a rough detail. Every once in a while, they'd do some silly things. One day, I'm playing ball in the street, 10 years old. We lived on kind of an incline. Kid throws a ball, goes over my head, rolls down to where these two detectives are sitting in the car. As the ball approaches them, one guy gets out, big burly guy, right? And uh, he stops the ball with his foot. So I walk up to him and I said, sir, can I have my ball back? And he looks at me, he's got a suit jacket on, pulls his jacket aside, he's got a gun in there, pulls it out and said, this is for your old man one day. Kind of scary, you know, when you're a 10 year old kid. Another time we're in a restaurant, as a family, we sit down, have a bite to eat. They would file in afterwards, sit in a, a table behind us and watch us eat. One particular night, again, Asian gets a little out of hand, walks by my table, makes a nasty remark to my dad. He didn't like that. You don't disrespect my father, especially in front of his family. Dad jumped up one right after the agent. Asian got scared. My dad was a tough guy. Pulls out his gun again, you know, right in the middle of the restaurant. I remember my dad saying, go ahead, I'll drop you before you get off the first shot. Good stuff while you're eating, right? <laughs> Uh, everybody started screaming, me and my brother jumping between them, separate them, pulled them apart. You know, normal stuff you do when you were a kid. And so I didn't like them very much back then. But I want to make this very clear right now, especially to all the young people out there. I do not feel that way anymore. 
I finally realized in my life, people, that they were the good guys and we were the bad guys, at least some, most of the time. Look, anybody can get off in this life. It doesn't matter who you are. Who you are. And people, I'll tell you this. Uh, some of my dearest friends today are in law enforcement all over this country. As a matter of fact, one came up to me before. We did this conference here with all law enforcement, undercover agents. Very uncomfortable when I'm that. And I'm sitting on the stage and talking to them. But you know what? I learned something through this experience, and that is we really are all one in the kingdom of God. Amen? And I want to tell you this. I give a very strong anti-crime message to all of our young people all over the country. I did a lot of time in prison with a lot of young kids coming into the system, 22, 23 years old, mandatory minimum drug sentences. In the federal system now, there's no parole. You get 20, you're doing 85%, 17 and a half. Very, very tough for a young person to go through that, come out and be a productive member of society. And you know what? You can write the same script for every single one of them. And I used to counsel them even before I became a Christian. I have a heart for kids, seven of my own. You know, same script. Broken home, no father figure in the house, dads, no father figure in the house. Listen to that. It's contributing to so much of the ails that we have today, these broken homes. You know, someday we're going to long for the, the days of Father Knows Best and Donna Reed and all those shows where the father was a wholesome figure, unlike married with children and modern family and all that kind of stuff, you know? And the same script. You know, mom trying to do her best. She's got her own problems. Young mom usually. So what happens? Gravitate to the street. They get in uh, you know, contact with the local drug dealer, local gangbanger. Before you know they're doing their bidding, end up in prison, or God forbid, something worse. And I used to tell them straight out, and all you young ones, listen up. Listen to this. In this world today, we are who we hang out with. You hang with the wrong crowd, you're going to be known to be the wrong person, and of course they're going to influence you. People, let me tell you something. When I came to Christ, I didn't get a lobotomy. I don't forget the time I put on the street. You know, sometimes I'll get off a plane in New York, somebody looks at me the wrong way, I'm ready to go. I say, hey man, what's up? It's like 20 years of ministry went out the street, and I'm the mob guy again. It happens like this. You must surround yourself with the right people in life. We are who we hang out with. Amen. Secondly, we are who we are accountable. The path that you're going to take in life is going to be directed by who you are accountable to. When I was on the street, accountable to my boss, accountable to my oath, I was a criminal, suffered the consequences. Now I'm accountable to my God first, to my wife, to my children, to the people that you know, expect me to do the right thing in life. Be accountable to God, and you can't go wrong in this life, people. Amen. You know, but back then it was different. And I loved my dad. I didn't care what people said about him, what I read in the newspaper. Great dad, great husband to my mother. He didn't want this life for me originally. Wanted me to go to school, be a doctor. Son, stay off the street, get an education. That's what it's all about. And I was on that road until my dad got in some very serious problem. He was indicted three times in the state of New York. Twice for grand larceny, once for murder. Went to trial for all three of those cases. Uh, eventually was acquitted, found not guilty in court. But then in 1966, my dad was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted. In 1967, he was sentenced to 50, 50 years in prison. 1970, he loses all his appeals. They ship him off to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas to do his time. 
I was a pre-med student, Hofstra University. When dad went in, I was devastated. 50 when he went in, figured he had 50 on top of that. My dad would never come out of prison alive. And just as an aside, my dad did 40 years on that 50. He was in and out five times, each time on a parole violation, and each time for associating with another felon, somebody alleged to be an organized crime. You can't do that when you're on federal parole. When I was on parole, I had 526 people on my separation list. Feds actually give you a list with people you can't associate with. Some of them on the list I never heard of. Some of them were dead. They don't even let you go to a cemetery and meet with anybody. <laughs> Feds are tough, let me tell you. You don't want to mess with them. My dad would come out. He'd meet with people. He thought he was being covert. They'd follow him, locked him up five times. You know, I went to see him in his last violation. He was 90 years old. I went to see him, I said, Dad, come on, man, this is getting ridiculous, you know? Five times, you gotta stop meeting with people. He said to me, son, what do you want me to do? I don't know anybody that's not a felon. He said, even you're a felon. I said, I know that, Dad, <laughs> but you're allowed to see me. I was number one on his list. Took me two years to get off the list. Feds are tough, you don't wanna mess with them. But anyway, the sad thing, my dad gets out on that last violation. I think I gave him a year, 15 months, something like that. Within two years, he's indicted again. He goes to trial, gets convicted. They gave him another eight years at the age of 93. My dad was released from prison in 2017 at the age of 100. He was the oldest inmate in the system at the time of his release. And unfortunately, my dad passed away uh, uh, a few years later at the age of 103. He was the oldest living mob guy for sure in America, quite possibly in the world. I don't think anybody lived to that age in that life. And, you know, I love my dad. You know, we had our differences when I walked away from the life, but, you know, he's dad and I loved him very much. And, um, but I went to see my dad when he went away, Joe Colombo, the boss of our family, he kind of took me under his wing, knew him well, started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your old man out, he's going to die in prison. I'm very affected by that because people, I want to tell you this. My dad did a lot of bad things in his life, no doubt about it. So did I. I went to jail for a crime I was guilty of, pled guilty, did my time. But that particular crime that my dad did all that time for, he was innocent of. My dad was no bank robber. I'll take that to my grave. Investigated that case thoroughly. We spoke to every witness that testified against him, recanted their testimony, gave him lie detector tests, proved they lied at the trial. We can never get the conviction overturned. You know, but what does that tell you people? It's what I tell these young people. You put that bullseye on your back, you become a target, you're gonna go down eventually. The best way to stay away from it, stay away from it. That's it. Don't put yourself in that situation because there are serious consequences to follow. I tell these kids, listen, life is tough enough when everything is good. Everything's rolling along good. All of a sudden, pandemic hits out of nowhere. God forbid there's a health issue, inflation through the roof. Whatever happens, when everything is good, we had no control. You do the wrong thing in life. You put more baggage on your shoulders to carry around. This life becomes very, very tough. I can't begin to tell you how many men I spoke to in prison, 55, 60, 65 years old. They say, Michael, I don't know where my life went. I look, I'm old now. Don't make those mistakes, people. You keep God in, in the focus, in the center, and he will keep you away from that kind of stuff. Critical. I go see my dad in prison. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're gonna die in here. He was upset. We argued about it a little bit. I was a pretty headstrong kid. He knew my mind was made up. Son, if you're gonna be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. 
Go home, somebody's gonna be in touch with you. Do whatever you're told. Defining moment. My dad was proposing me into a criminal lifestyle. And people, you know, think about it. When you finally come to Christ, you know, you look back in your life and you say, God, you know what, now I get it. Now I know why you put this person in my life. Now I know why you gave me this great joy, great joy. Why you allowed me, not caused me. God does not cause us to have problems. We live in a fallen world. Hard concept to understand, but if you understand your Bible, you'll get it. You'll get it. But you look back and you say, you know what, God? You're using all of these situations, even the bad ones, to prepare me for what your purpose is in my life. Amen? Amen? And this moment, of course, was very significant because, again, proposing me into a criminal lifestyle, defining moment. But more than that, because of this time, when I came to Christ, I didn't come easy. I said, God, wait a second. Wait a second. I love my father more than anything else. I followed him blindly into this life, and look where it got me, and it got me in a very bad place. I'll get to that. You take it a step further. In my life, I took a blood oath. I surrendered my life to Cousin Oyster. People, you come into this life, you got to give it all up, body, mind, and soul, or you don't survive. I said, God, I did this twice in my life, and look where it got me. I can't do this again. If you really are God, if this Bible is written by men but inspired by you, the blueprint for our life, that's how I look at the Bible. It's God's word in our life. Well, you know what, God? And you're telling me the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. No gray area, black and white, Jesus or nothing. Well, let me tell you this, God. You know, I didn't ask to come to this earth. You gave me a free will. You said I can choose one of any hundred faiths, or I don't have to choose any faith at all. And now you're telling me this is the only way to go? No, God. You got to prove it to me. You got to show me the evidence. I challenge God and people. I know a little bit about evidence. I've been arrested over 18 times. I've been indicted seven times. Two federal racketeering cases, one brought on by Rudy Giuliani. I had five criminal trials, okay? I've spent more time, I've done more parole hearings than there are probably at the top of that room. I've been to the Supreme Court on constitutional issues in my dad's case. I know the law, I don't like it, but I know it. Evidence has played a major role in my life. And people, I wanna tell you this. When I finally challenged God, he didn't get upset with me. I, he said to me, okay, my son, if you're ready to open up your heart and your stubborn mind, I'm ready to show you because I am God and I do have the evidence. And I want to tell you this, and I'm speaking specifically to the men, because the men say, Michael, oh, show me, and then they don't want to look. You know, Paul says, test everything, everything, and hold on to the good. There is more evidence to prove that the Bible is God's word and that Jesus is our risen savior than there is anything else that exists in the world. Amen? You just gotta work and you gotta do the work, people. When you walk out of here, if you do nothing, you gotta do the work. Because people, I wanna tell you something. I spent 29 months and seven days in solitary confinement. I'll get to that. Six, uh, six by eight cell, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And people, let me tell you something. That's not easy. Isolation is very difficult. I am very much against that for our young people. It will destroy them emotionally and every other way. And I preach out against this all the time. Very difficult. Those lights went out. I saw a lot of guys, a lot of things I don't even want to remember. Guys that couldn't handle it. But you know what I did? I dove into my Bible. 
I had my wife send me in over 400 books on every faith. I studied every faith because I was in a search for the truth. And you know what happened to me during that time? I developed a healthy fear of hell. And you know what? It's good to have a healthy fear of things that are no good for you. I have a healthy fear of drugs. Why? My sister at the age of 27 died of an overdose of drugs. My brother's been a drug addict for over 25 years. I can't even begin to tell you what he put me and the family through because of that addiction. I'm afraid of drugs. Don't want to try it. I never even smoked a joint in my life. I may like it. I don't want it. Stay away from it. Healthy fears are good to have. And when I was in that hole, I said, man, if this is what hell is like, never ending, and even worse, I don't want any part of it. And it motivated me to really read. You know what? The Bible tells us it's good to have a healthy fear of God. It really is. And guys, I'm not saying this to scare you, but we got to be realistic. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. It's a real place. But the good news is none of us have to go there. Because we serve a God of mercy, a God, that, a God of love, people. That's the deal. So my dad proposes me. Two weeks later, a captain in a family picks me up, takes me to see the boss. He runs it down to me. Joe Colombo had been shot, seriously wounded. New boss took over. His name was Tom DeBella. Tom has moved on now, passed on now, I should say. Michael, I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life. Is that true? Yes. Well, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. That means if your mother is sick and she's dying and you're at her bedside, we call you to service. You leave your mother. You come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. People, a mob's not a business. It's a way of life. It's a whole subculture from everything else that exists. We affect everybody around us, family, friends, people we do business with. It's a way of life. For the next two and a half years, I was a recruit. I had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. Could have been something very menial. Drive the boss to a meeting, sit in a car three, four hours until he comes out. A lot of stuff like that. And people, I want to be really honest with you this morning because you need to understand where the Lord has brought me. And this is for every one of you that is struggling. If you believe God has done a work in my life, what are you worried about? That life at times is very violent. And if you're part of the life, you're part of the violence and there's no escape. And in our family, the Colombo family, we had three wars during my lifetime, internal wars. And people, there's no escape in that. And you know what I mean. And it's not something I'm proud of. It's not something I like to talk about. But I do it for your benefit. Because some of you say, like I said, you know, I've been too bad. God can never forgive me. He can never use me. Well, if you believe he's done a work in my life, what are you worried about? And I really mean that. So after about two and a half years, amen, I proved myself worthy. It was Halloween night, 1975, when I walked into a room with five other gentlemen that night, we all took an oath, became sworn, made members of the Colombo family. People, I took that oath very seriously back then. I take it seriously today, even though I don't consider myself a member of that life anymore. You know, you know what they say when you leave that life, you either leave in a coffin or you join the government, enter a witness protection program. Obviously, I've done neither. What I know about that life in my heart, my mind, not easily forgotten. The six of us walked into a room individually, very solemn ceremony, dimly lit room late at night. They wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. Um, I walked down the aisle. The boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration, underboss, consigliere to his left and right. All the captains were alongside of them. 
Walked down there, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand, took a knife, right here. Cut my finger, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. Cupped my hands, took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it in my hands and lit it aflame. Didn't hurt, it burnt quickly, it was merely symbolic. And he said something to me that night, I don't recall ever hearing in my life before. And I grew up as a Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school, altar boy, the whole bit. But for some reason, for me, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I didn't understand, people, that this entire life is about a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus. Amen. And I'm not blaming Catholics. It just didn't work for me. And when he said this, the first time I recall hearing it, he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life. Betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? Yes, I do. That's the oath. You know what I believe in taking that oath? I'm coming into a criminal lifestyle. I believe that's one way that Satan mocked our God. Like he looked up and said, okay, I'll show you what born again is. I got one of yours. Think about it. Because remember, the enemy has two functions here on earth, in my opinion. I think biblically, I'm, I'm supported by this. Number one, separate us from God. You're not good enough. You're too bad. God can never use you. You'll never be forgiven. Separate us from God. And he's got a million tools, social media and everything else, to convince us of that. And secondly, he wants to mock our God. Remember when Jesus was in the desert, 40 days and 40 nights fasting? The enemy appeared to him three times. Third time, get on your knees, Jesus, and I'll give you this whole beautiful city. It'll all be yours. I believe he knew Jesus wasn't going for that. He was just mocking our God. But how do we defeat that? Paul tells us, put on the armor of the Holy Spirit and we defeat him. Every bad act coming against us is from Satan, from the devil. We have the way to defeat him each and every time he'll run. Trust me on that. So now I'm a made member of that life. I came into the life for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to get my dad out of prison. I did get him out after 10 years on parole. Told you what happened after that. Secondly, I wanted to make money. And that life, <clears throat> money translates to power, just like the real world. Don't need to go into that. I had a lot of success in that life. I, I had developed a scheme to uh, defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. I ran it for about eight years with my Russian partners. Uh, at the height of our operation, we were bringing in eight to $10 million a week. I had my own jet plane, my own helicopter. I had a house in Florida, a house in New York, a house in Marina del Rey, California. I had 300 guys under me ready to do anything I'd tell them to do. They had moved me up to the position of corporate regime. I was a captain, and honestly, people, they were grooming me and the boss's son to either be the boss or the underboss of that family. So I was on that trajectory. And then something happened, 1984. And I believe this is when God started to make this transition in my life. 1984, I'm a captain in a family, got all this stuff going on. Among many things I was doing, <coughs> excuse me, I was making movies. I had a production company in LA. I'm making movies. So I'm producing this movie. Smokey Robinson, a good friend of mine, comes to me with a screenplay for a breakdance movie. A lot of music, a lot of dance, a lot of rap music. But that's when you can listen to rap music on the radio. Not like today. Forget about this stuff today. But back then it was cool. We had the Sugar Hill Gang, Run DMC, the Fat Boys, Curtis Blow, right? All good stuff. Yeah. I said, Smokey, I'll make the movie. Let's film it in Florida. Got a house down there. I like the warm weather. Great. So we're filming it in Florida. We bring in a cast and crew from L.A. to work in the film, 20 professional dancers. 
Got him staying in a hotel in South Florida. We had just finished four or five weeks of pre-production. Monday, we're going into principal photography, the heavy work. Sunday, I throw a party for everyone in the back of the hotel, right? Everybody's having a great time, beautiful day in Florida. I'm sitting by the pool, minding my own business, right? Talking to some of the guys, and then all of a sudden, out of the water, comes this gorgeous 20-year-old girl. I saw her, it was like a Pepsi commercial. Everything went in slow motion, right? I said, wow, who is this girl, right? You know, she looked like a dancer. She had kind of a dancer's body. So the choreographer was sitting next to me. Jeff, that one of your girls? He said, yeah. I said, bring her over. I want to meet her. Big shot producer. She want to meet me. Why not, right? She comes over. Her name was Camille. I said, Camille, I'm your producer. I want to get to know you better. Let me take you to lunch. She said, sure. No problem. Very sweet. Very polite, right? And uh, <clears throat> so we set a time and a place. I have this uh, restaurant set up on top of one of the hotels. Figure I got everything going but the violin. She comes up there, sweep her off her feet. She's mine. That was my attitude back then, right? I'm up there about 45 minutes. She never showed up. She stood me up, right? <laughs> stood up a mob guy, imagine that. She didn't know who I was, you know? If, <clears throat> I, I probably would have never seen her again. Next day on the set, I said, hey, what happened? We had a date. You didn't show up. I thought she was going to say, well, I'm sorry, you know? She said, I was busy. I said, oh, excuse me, what were you doing? <clears throat> she said, I was rehearsing. I said, okay, can we try it again? Sure, no problem. Another time and a place we go, she stands me up again. Now, she did this to me five times. Now, if she was here, she would roll her eyes, say, stop exaggerating, it wasn't five times. Hey, guys, when we're the offended party, we know when we were stood up, right? <laughs> I wasn't used to rejection at that point. Anyway, I'm gonna make a very long story short, and it is a long one. By the way, they're making a television series about my life, so all this stuff is gonna come out, hopefully by next year. But uh, anyway, uh, and this is a big part of the story. We finally get to know each other a little bit on the set. She was from Anaheim, California. She used to dance in Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm. She had no clue who I was or what she was getting involved with with me, right? So we get to know each other a little bit. We wrap the movie. She says, you got to come home and meet my mother. She's very close to her mom, right? I said, hey, I'm great with moms. Let's go, right? We jump on a plane. We go meet her mom. Her mom, Irma, was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. You meet Irma for two minutes, your name goes into her prayer book. She had a prayer book like a telephone book. I'm not kidding. And... Uh, so I meet these two women. Again, I got to cut this really short because I'm near out of time. I don't want to get the hook. But anyway, um, these women are really having an impact on me. Now, I wasn't buying into their Christian faith, two strong Christians, but I respected them because they were for real. And I'm falling in love with this woman. Now, let me tell you this. She wasn't the first beautiful woman in my life, no doubt, but there was something about her. And now after 38 years of marriage, that something about her was God. God put her in my life. Now, I want to ask you this. Who did God put in your life? Who's been praying for you every day? Who dragged you into this church this morning? You know, God doesn't go to a different town, different church, different city, different place. He's always trying to get our attention, maybe through the people we meet, maybe through a great joy in our life, maybe through something that's unpleasant. He's always trying to get our attention. The question is, are we paying attention? So what's happening is I'm falling in love with this girl, and my love is becoming more powerful than this lifelong bond, this love, this adoration I had for my dad, becoming more powerful than this blood oath that I took to Cousin Ostra. And I'm saying, when these women understand who I am, I'm a direct contradiction to everything that they believe. How is this going to work? So I start to think and plan and plot. How am I going to move away from this life? Because people, I want to tell you something. I call the mob life, the gang life, Cosa Nostra, evil lifestyles. 
Now I wanna be clear, I'm not calling them any evil. I was one of them, had a lot of friends back then. But the lifestyle is evil because I don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't been totally devastated, including my own. Not my wife and kids, mother, father, brothers, sisters. Can't even tell you the heartache that went through because of my dad's involvement and his imprisonment. And I know that to be true of every single family that I know. So every, any lifestyle that can do that to a family is a bad lifestyle. It's evil. Can't engage in it. So I'm saying to myself, am I going to marry this girl and then put her through what my family went through and what everybody else went through? I had to make a choice. So I had a plan. Always had a plan, right? I had been to trial five times. My last case, Rudy Giuliani indicted me on a big racketeering case. I was the lead defendant, 15 co-defendants. Rudy tells me in a courtroom the day of my arraignment, million dollar bail. He says, Francis, I convict you on this case. You're getting double what your father got. I'm gonna give you 100 years. And look it up, that's the kind of time that would give him mob guys back in the 80s. I remember standing toe to toe with Rudy and say, hey Rudy, bring it on. I beat you guys four times already. Let's go for round five. And that's probably the dumbest thing that you could ever do. You don't antagonize them anymore. But I was young and arrogant back then, right? And uh, fortunately, after a seven-month trial in federal court, I was acquitted in that case. Some of my co-defendants were convicted. They got 30 years. He would have given me at least 50. I wouldn't be here this morning. So I said, they want me bad. They're going to indict me on this whole racketeering case for the gas tax thing. But I beat them. I got leverage with the government. It's good to have leverage with the government. Long story short, I take a plea. 10-year prison sentence, $15 million restitution, $5 million in forfeitures. I gave up the plane, the helicopter, the whole bit. I married Camille in July of 1985. I go off to prison in December of 85. People, I am not the story here. My wife is the story. That girl didn't have a clue. Okay, but eight hard years in prison. The government was all over me to try to make me a witness. Put me on diesel therapy, moved me all over the country. That girl didn't even know where, she, how to visit me. Because they don't tell, you, you know, your family when you're being moved for security reasons. Okay, I get out on parole after five years. 13 months on the street in LA, the worst 13 months of my life. Big shot mob guy made all this money on the street. I couldn't get anything going in LA. I was like a fish out of water. People were trying to hurt me, contract on my life. My father disowned me for a time. The feds all over me. Frenzies, you're a dead man. It's all over the street. Come with us. We'll put you in a program, preserve your life and that of your families. I didn't want that. I wasn't looking to hurt anybody. I wasn't mad. They didn't take no for an answer. It gave me a tough time. After 13 months on the street, like a fool, first to admit it, I fall into a trap, violate my parole. That's when they put me back in. I'm walking out of a bank in Brentwood, California. 15 agents slapped the cuffs on me, leaned on my bank accounts, drove my car away, went to my house with a search warrant, took every dollar we had, went into my wife's purse, took every penny out of there, said, this is your husband's money. You don't work. It's all his money. We're indicting him on a new case. We violated his parole. Your husband will never see the street again. She had a breakdown on me at that point. If it wasn't for her mother, and our church, Westwood Christian Hills Church at that time, God, oh my God, I'm so thankful to those people that held her up. The church, I don't know if we'd be together. She couldn't visit me for seven or eight weeks. They take me down to the federal lockup in LA, ready to transport me back to Brooklyn in the morning. Francis, we're done with you. We don't want you to cooperate anymore. We violated your parole, took all your money, indicting you on a new racketeering case. You'll never see the street again. 
They throw me in a hole, six by eight cell, waiting to transport me back to Brooklyn. And this is my situation. I said, man, I'm done. I said, they took all my money? Another racketeering case? People, you don't beat these cases with public defenders. I spent millions defending myself. I said, they can't put me on a yard. Everybody's looking to hurt me. I said, my wife, she waited for me five years, 13 months on parole. She's 27 years old. We have two little babies now. I'm going to lose the girl I did all this for. I said, I'm done. For the first time in my life, I felt totally out of control. People, I will tell you this. I used to demean people that were suicidal, call them weak. How do you not face up to your troubles? I don't do that anymore. I wasn't suicidal in that night, but honestly, I wanted to lay my head on that cot and not wake up. It was too painful for me to think of my future. Hopelessness, the worst emotion you can ever experience. And I pray none of you ever have it, but if you do, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm angry with God. Come on, God. I married this Christian girl. I left that life. Look what you did to me. Don't we get mad at God when we screw up, right? I'm laying there, and honestly, I didn't want to wake up. Prison guard walks by myself. Francis, you okay? You don't look good. I said, hey, man, get away from me. Don't bother me. I don't want to see any of you guys tonight. I chased him. He left. Came back about two minutes later, pushes something through the slot on the door, falls on the floor. I hear a thump. I look down. Bible. I don't want to see a Bible. I wanted a bottle of Prozac or something, right? I'm getting so angry, people. With God, feeling sorry for myself, I jump off of that cot, pick up that Bible, and slammed it against that cinder block wall as hard as I could, like everything came out of me. Took me another minute, I said, you know what? I believed in God. There's only me and God in this cell. I don't need another enemy. I got nothing but enemies. I picked up the book, and I looked up at that cement ceiling, and I said, God, if you're up there, you need to give me something to make me feel better. I can't deal with this. I need help. I'm holding the book. Now, you know, in Catholic school, you don't read the Bible. You read the catechism. The priest reads the Bible from the pulpit, the gospel, on a Sunday morning. I don't even know where to look. I'm holding it, and it falls open to the book of Proverbs. Coincidence? I don't think so. Analytical guy, show me the evidence. Solomon was brilliant. When God said to Solomon in the book of Kings, nobody before you will ever be as wise, and nobody after you will ever be as wise, as a reward for what he didn't ask for, with the exception of Jesus, had a little advantage, he was God. Nobody was as brilliant as Solomon. And I'm reading that book, and I'm starting to get, wow, this guy's smart. I come to a verse that just stops me cold. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Amen? Now, what got me? The enemies part. And by the way, I had nothing but enemies that day. Nothing but enemies. And it was almost as if something brought me back and the Holy Spirit was standing there. And understand this, people. I've never seen a vision of the Lord. I've never heard him speak to me audibly. Speaks to my heart all the time because I have a relationship with him. But that night, something happened. It was almost as if the Holy Spirit said... Are you really committing yourself to me? Have your ways been pleasing to me? I got convicted. And then something said, but if you had been, I can take care of your enemies because I'm God and I can do that. That's how I interpreted that verse. And people, you know this. You can look at a Bible verse 10 times, can have 10 different interpretations. Why? The Holy Spirit speaks to you through that verse according to your needs at that moment. And it caused me to read on. And I came to a verse that's become the verse of my life. 
And I think it should be the verse of every one of your lives. I think it all starts here. Now, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I am a former mob guy. I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Isn't everything about trust, people? Think about it. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, because I guarantee there are sometimes we just don't have the answers. I didn't have them that night. In all your ways, acknowledge him because he's our God and he's worthy and deserves that. And catch this verse, because I looked it up. He can, not he will, or not he might, rather. He will make your path straight. I screwed up on that one, but you get it, okay? And when you break it down, people, that's my story. Out of desperation, I turned to God. And he's made my paths a lot straighter than they were before. So now, my book, Blood Covenant, people, guys, you want to read a mob story? It's a mob story. I don't sugarcoat anything. Ladies, it's a love story, a story about me and my wife and how we got together. But really, it's a story about how God, okay, can transform a life. I want you to read the inside cover. When I walked away from that life in 95 and walked out of prison, everybody predicted my death. Life magazine, quote, if he holds to what he has promised will mark the first time a high-ranking member of the mafia will publicly walk away from his past and live. Ed McDonald, head of the organized strike force, my prosecutor, goes on national TV and says, quote, I wouldn't want to be in Michael Franzese's shoes. I don't think his life expectancy is very substantial, very diplomatic, predicting my death. Bernie Welsh, the FBI agent, follows him to the podium that day and says, quote, Franzese will get whacked. And I think you know what that means in street terms. That was in 1995. In 1975, I told you I took an oath with five other gentlemen. Today, I'm the only one alive. Not one of those men died of natural causes. All five of them were murdered. We had a big war in our family in the early 90s. Want a little bit more proof that when God has a plan and a purpose, nothing will stand in the way? Fortune magazine, 1986, wrote a huge article, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country. Half the magazine, they featured six of us. I was one of the six, right? They actually had a chart with the 50 of us on there according to rank, wealth, and power. I was number 18, youngest guy on the list, five behind John Gotti at that point. He hadn't been made boss. Silly list. Don't ask me how they make something like that. They didn't ask for our tax return. Just sold a lot of magazines. But here's what's not silly about that list. Today, some 30-odd years later, out of the list of 50, 48 of those men are dead. Number 49 is doing life in prison. And number 50 is here for one reason, and one reason only, to give praise and honor and glory to my Lord and Savior and my hero, my hero, Jesus Christ. So what does that tell you? When God has got a plan and a purpose for us, and he does for every single one of us, nothing is going to stand in the way. No mob, no mafia, no Cosa Nostra, no gang, no sickness, no addiction, not even death will stand in the way of our God fulfilling his purpose in our lives except for one thing. You know what that is? That's every one of us people, because remember this, our merciful, loving, and just God is never an intruder in our life. He's always what? An invited guest. So I'm going to do something now that's the most important thing that you're going to hear all morning. I'm going to invite pastor up here, and he is going to make you an offer that none of you should refuse. God bless you. See you out there. Dear.
Thank you. Thank the Lord for Michael. Michael, thank you. God bless you. That was awesome. Come on, clap your hands.